Hello and welcome to The World in 30 Minutes, the podcast on the ideas, events and policies that will shape the world from the European Council on Foreign Relations. My name is Mark Leonard and I'm Director of ECFR and this week I'm joining you from The Hague where ECFR's 200 council members are meeting to try and make sense of the political earthquake that was set off almost a week ago by the British voters who decided to leave the European Union. The discussion which you're about to hear is one that brings together the famous hedge fund uh, manager and uh, chairman and founder of the Open Society Foundations, George Soros, the chairman of the Foreign Affairs Committee in the German Parliament, the Bundestag, Norbert Röttgen, who's also a former Energy and Environment Minister, and no less than three European former European Prime Ministers. Hella Thorning-Schmidt, who was Prime Minister of Denmark and is currently the CEO of Save the Children International. Alexander Stubb, who until recently was Finance Minister of Finland, but before that was Prime Minister and Foreign Minister. And finally, Gordon Bainai, who was a Prime Minister of Hungary as well. The discussion is chaired by Gideon Rachman, who is the Chief Foreign Affairs Columnist for the Financial Times, and tries to make sense of where the European project is at after this momentous vote, what the other member states can learn from the British vote, and what the future shape of Europe will be. I hope you enjoy it. Let me start with you, George Soros, if I may. Um, you, you've written an article in, in Project Syndicate taking a very gloomy view of uh, the, what this might mean for Europe. So let's look at the wider European impact first. Would you like to just uh, give us a, a sense of what you think is going to happen now? Well, I think the uh, uh, Brexit was a great shock to everyone, myself included. I just simply couldn't believe that Britain would make that this would be the outcome. So I was with probably the the majority of people who was shocked. Um, And I did write this article, um, which was published by most newspapers under the title uh, The the, uh, Disintegration of Europe is Practically uh, Inevitable. And that missed the point of the article because it came, it was a setup for the conclusion that we mustn't let it happen, that those of us who believe in the European Union but recognize that it has well and truly broken down and need to be thoroughly uh, reconfigured, reconstructed should band together and uh, uh, make sure that what would be otherwise uh, irreversible doesn't actually happen. Now, where to start this uh, process is very interesting to see what was the reaction in Britain, Um, because... uh, the, the reaction that I had was widely shared in, in the British public, and 
Um, you mean incredulity that it had happened? That it happened and, and uh, a shock yeah. what they have done. And this included the people who had voted for the Leave faction because they were doing it in the conviction that Leave would not uh, succeed and therefore they could register a protest against uh, the direction of, the, of, of Britain at, at the present time. So it, it was a general, um, what is called a, a buyer's remorse. Um, and it, uh, it uh, uh, included everyone, both people who voted for leave, those who voted for, uh, for remain, and those who didn't vote. Uh, and it was, this was particularly strongly felt among the young people who had who'd sort of... Uh, were not in something like three-quarters of young people voted to remain, but three-quarters of young people didn't vote. That's, that's exactly right. So, so uh, uh, within, within uh, uh, 24 hours, there was... A, uh, an initiative, uh, since this vote, vote was a, an advisory board, I think 24 members of parliament uh, signed a, a, a declaration that it should, uh, the parliament should re- reject it. And uh, uh, it had a tremendous, spontaneous response. Uh, it has now... At the last count, I think three and a half, or by now four, four million signatures, and it's not inconceivable that. Uh, and this is a spontaneous move. There is no organization behind it, um, so it's 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 not an impossibility to actually gather more votes than were cast. For, uh, for the uh, for, uh, for uh, leaving. Okay. Well, I mean, that was a very. I think you identify one of the really important issues, which is obviously it's very. Everyone's very shocked. But is this a definitive verdict, or might it be something that we've been through shocks before? Nothing quite like this, but rejections of treaties and so on, which have been reversed on. Uh, and Alex Stubb, it just struck me actually. I introduced you as the two prime ministers. You're also the both married to Brits. Um, so per- perhaps uh, on the more forgiving end of the European reaction. But Alex, uh, what, 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 do you, uh, what do you think is going to happen now? And does this strike you as an irredeemable rift? I think Francois Hollande said it was unexpected, but it's irreversible. Does it, do you think it's irreversible? Yeah, just on the note of our marriages, it clearly proves that we have no luck at home, so seek Britain. <laughs> and and um, No, I mean, the way in which it works is I, I think if you look at European crises uh, or events, big events, they usually go in three phases. Phase number one is the actual crisis. You know, it can be the end of the Cold War or it can be Danish rejection of the Maastricht Treaty or Irish rejection of the Nice Treaty or French and Dutch rejection of the Constitution. So phase one is crisis. Then phase two is chaos, when people simply don't know what's going to happen. You saw that with the refugee crisis. 
you saw that with possible Grexit, there was sort of no solutions to be found, and, and people were looking desperate for solutions. I think that's where we're standing right now. And then phase three is classic. It's suboptimal solution. <laughs> that's what happens. It's always a suboptimal solution. Now, what can take place now? My initial reaction was that this is going to be definitive. It's going to be very difficult to reverse this back. But now I look at the general political chaos in the UK right now. I look at to what Mr. Soros referred to with the soon-to-be four million uh, signatures. Would there be a way back? Uh, and just to wrap up this first intervention, I'd say that there are three solutions. One is a prolonged divorce, which is based on Article 50, which, by the way, is new. It only came in the Lisbon Treaty. It's, it's nothing that we've tried before. Uh, and this will probably take two to five years. Uh, number two uh, is to start some kind of a new deal with the United Kingdom, which is akin to the European economic area, uh, a Norway type of a solution. Obviously, the problem with that is that you're part of free movement of goods, services, money, and labor. On top of that, you pay for that membership, you don't get a rebate, and you get the immigrants coming in. So I don't know whether that's you know, good or bad for, for the UK. The final solution, which I would sort of silently be hoping for, and which I think uh, a prominent Financial Times columnist will be publishing in a few minutes, um, in other words, Gideon, uh, is that there would be some kind of re-evaluation, perhaps a renegotiation on free movement of labor, and then the deal would be put anew to the British people. That would be a stunning change, but it would be probably my preferred, albeit rather uh, idealistic solution. We're in completely uncharted territory here. It's new. I'm still in shock. I, I, I can't deny that. Well, for someone in shock, you're, you have a very ordered mind. Um, uh, Hella Torning-Schmidt, I mean, I'd like to ask you the, the same question. Do you think this is irreversible? But also, I'd be, I think a lot of people would be interested if you give us a flavor of how you think this will play in Denmark. Will there be people in Denmark saying, OK, we should be doing this as well? Well, first of all, I want to thank you for inviting me here today. I'm delighted to be here. And I think after the Brexit, it was even more important, as Mark was pointing out, that we were, we're together, that we discuss these things, and that we try to understand. And I would advise our discussion not to start from whether this is irreversible or not, because then we're missing the point a little bit, because we have to step back today, and we have to understand why this happened. And I've been spending, like everyone else, my weekend really mulling over this, trying to understand what happened. And in a way, I'm surprised that we are surprised that it turned out to be a Brexit. Why are we surprised about that? We, knew, we know that the UK is a country where they, there's a lot of inequality. They have an electoral system which means that a lot of people vote, and their vote doesn't mean anything when, when, uh, when they, they cast their vote. We have, an we have a system in the UK where politicians, leading politicians for many years, have been spending the last 10, 20 years slagging off the European Union. Um, we have a lot of dissatisfaction with uh, the so-called uh, elite. We see that everywhere in Europe, in the US. Um, and on top of that, we have a European Union with a lot of issues uh, about immigration, an issue that has become top of mind, and not only top of mind, like the most toxic issue uh, of all politics uh, uh, everywhere. 
And that was, that was even toppled by the Syrian crisis that just turned worse and worse. Also, we have experience about this. I was just looking up because I almost forgot. They had a Maastricht referendum. No, it wasn't Maastricht. Yeah, it was a Lisbon referendum in France in 2005. They lost it. They lost it. In Denmark, we had a referendum in December 2015. We lost it. We're losing, we lost in Ireland, we lost other places. In, in the Netherlands, where we sit now, we lost it. Why are we even surprised that this happened? When you think of it like that, we should actually appreciate that 16 million people walked out of their door that day and they actually decided to remain in the European Union. So that's the first thing I think we should think about. Why were we even surprised? The other thing we need to think about, and here I have to, where is Mark? I need to look at him when I disagree with him a little bit. <laughs> we have to be very careful about how we talk about this split. We can't talk about the have-nots. We can't talk about the insurgents. We can't talk about, I wrote some of the words down you, you talked about. Angry nativists. And okay. Angry nativists, which was the worst, actually. <laughs> we can't talk like that about other people. These are people that are afraid of what's happening around them and that don't feel that they can go to a nice conference like we are at now and have a voice for their opinions. And we have to have the deepest respect for that. And that means that the path we're taking over the next few months and years, we have to understand that what they are most afraid of is that their culture, their, their neighborhoods are changing. And that must mean that in the future discussions we have about this, we have to be extremely serious about the European integ uh, integration uh, of, of people, the way we see EU nationals traveling around uh, the uh, European Union. We have to have a serious debate about that, where we don't just tell people to get used to it or forget about it, but where we sit on the side of people who are getting worried about the world that they see coming and that they're not so happy with. I could go on about this because I think this is where we have to have our evaluation. It has to be serious. But one thing we should not do is just carry on like nothing has happened and um, talk the language we have talked for so many years. I feel guilty. Uh, I feel that I haven't lived up to what we could have done, and we all, all have to take that in today. Could I ask you just a quick... Yeah. A deserved round of applause, but could I ask you a quick follow-up question? I mean, the implication of what you're saying, it seems to me is that free movement of people within Europe, within the current Europe, may not be sustainable in its current I form. I think free movement is sustainable. And don't get me wrong, I'm a huge supporter of that. I mean, I'm a huge supporter of the European Union from step one to where we are now. I think this is an amazing project that we have created. So I don't need to repeat that. I'm also a big supporter of free movement. But we have not, over the last 10 20 years, been firm enough in stating that it was a free movement of people applying for jobs and getting jobs. And if we're not serious about that, if people see that people come in and they have access to social services that people don't feel they're entitled to, it will not work. In Denmark, for example, if you have been applying, if you have had a job for a very short time, I think it's nine weeks, then you got access to all the services. And you can't then be surprised when people say, why? 
Why is that going on like that? So I'm just asking for us to tighten that a little bit. One of the things that I was arguing for when I was prime minister was basically, it was a small thing. It was just, can we make sure that people, when they come to Denmark, cannot cash their child benefits uh, immediately? We couldn't get that. We, we didn't have a strong enough voice to get that through. It was only when David Cameron set his whole kingdom up there that that could actually happen. And it shouldn't be like that in Europe. It, there has to be, we have to listen to what people are saying about these things uh, and try to change them just a little bit to accommodate the worries that people have. Gordon, uh T- tell us uh, how things are seen from Hungary. I noticed the Hungarian government, the current Hungarian government, took out a whole full-page advertisement in the British press urging us to remain uh, to no avail, though. Well, I may be biased. I wouldn't have uh, had that approach because I think they put out that advertisement, but uh, immediately after uh, the vote, they realized that it's not the winning side, so they since then changed tone and uh, talk about uh, actually... Uh, Europe was too bureaucratic and not, and it was right to reject that in a way. But it's not my job to interpret the, the Hungarian government. Uh, I would like to start from another angle to, to get to your uh, to your question. Is I think the future doesn't exist. So when we try to talk about the future, there may be two approaches. One uh, to talk about what should be, and Mark's paper was an excellent one on what should be. I would underwrite every line of that. But it's worth talking about what will be. So what is the realistic scenario? And politics, and especially realpolitik and populist politics, is ruling our life in Europe and actually is taking control over the rational socio-economic approach that was running Europe for the last 60 years. It's a different environment now. Because in a post-crisis environment, people are disappointed. And as uh, I think Toynbee said, uh, revolutions are not made by those who are poor, but by those who get disappointed. And so what will be, what is the political dynamics uh, of of Brexit? I think it's not reversible short term, even if that would be the rational thing. I very much agree with George that this is a, a, a grave danger of disintegration for Europe. And I think what will be the most important force the most easy political force to use is a kind of revanche, and I intentionally use the French word revanche politic against Britain, because it's easy. It it gives you a lot of benefit if you are a politician. First, if you finally, even status quo parties in Europe can identify an enemy, which can be the, the UK can be an easy enemy to fight against, and enemies are very useful, as we see from populists. They can unite the camp behind us. That's what populists always do. See Hungary, but not just. Um, so that's one thing. The other, it's also coming in very handy because there are, there are a, lot, a huge potential redistribution of GDP between the UK and the rest of Europe, especially France, to a degree Germany and others, in terms of services. So that will be an easy politics to go for that and try to have tough negotiations. And uh, thirdly, uh, also, if you want to keep Europe away from further disintegration, you have to show that those who leave are suffering. That will be a very strong motivation in many European politicians' head. Even if, for example, Angela Merkel has a much calmer voice, but she seems to be a a huge minority in this opinion. Many European politicians 
we like to see uh, Britain suffering and thereby send a message to everybody else who is hesitating or thinking about doing a similar path uh, not to do that. We have seen the same with Greece, who were, after the referendum uh, two years ago, they were taught the lesson in two weeks' time not to do it, and they have, uh, they have changed tax since then. Well, that's of an interesting message to hear for, for British ears. Uh, I mean, Norbert, he, uh, we've identified now very clearly one of the issues, how tough a line to take with Britain. Uh, as we heard, Angela Merkel has said there's no need to be nasty, but some people seem to think maybe there is a need to be nasty. How do, how do you think the debate's going to pan out? I think um, Angela Merkel is absolutely right. The Britons have caused, to put it in my words, the Britons have caused a huge amount of insecurity. And I think the Europeans should not get into this insecurity. We should neither urge the Britons to quickly leave. Why? It is We are not in charge for that. It's not our responsibility. It is the responsibility of the British government to declare and to invoke Article 50. Uh, and I think there is no justification for emotion of the European side. Perhaps there are emotions, there is outrage, but I think it is not wise to act in an emotional way, to react uh, emotionally to what has happened in Britain. And nor, neither should we push them, nor should we start negotiating with them, of course. So we should leave the insecurity with Britain. And then we'll, they, will, they will quickly start to make their experiences with insecurity. It will start with uh, the economic disadvantages of political insecurity they have created and caused. Um, uh, and, and it will go further. Uh, 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 they will see the unraveling of the parties, of the party system. Perhaps you will get in touch with the unraveling of the country. And this is all what is going to happen. And I think the Europeans should not uh, interfere in this internal process of making new experiences with a decision which has been taken by a slight majority of the country. So I would say abstain. Europe, there should be European abstain from that. But this is only the one aspect which I do not consider to be the political priority, which is much more important, is how do the 27 react to what has been happened? And of course, there is a huge underlying psychological shape, I would say, of the West, because you can't see Hungary, France, Britain, and even the United States. There is an underlying challenge of politics, of the establishment. We have a, a new wave of anti-movement, anti-establishment, anti-capitalism, anti-politics. And I think we have to, for the first time in the history of European integration, we have to fight for our European idea. What is Europe about? And you made the case that those who decided to leave, for example, Britain, I, I, in any case, I, I, I got you in this way, they, show, they have shown a kind of higher sensitivity to the problems, to the pressures we are exposed to. And I think we have to take this case and to say, no, the opposite is right. We are Europeans because we see the insecurities. We see 
that the, the poor uh, need solidarity. And I think we have to make clear what is Europe about, and we have to fight for it. And for this, we have to, we have to generate European results. We have to generate the unifying experience of success. And in this context, I unfortunately uh, suppose that Germany has, at this crucial juncture, a crucial role to, to, to contribute to European cohesion. I think it's now very much about the 27. How do we respect, uh, how do we react, not respect, how do we react to what has happened? And this has a huge influence how the European chapter is written in the future. Okay, just uh, incidentally, I know there's a lot of people out in the audience who would like to, uh, uh, to make some points, and I will give you your chance quite soon. But let me just follow up quickly, Norbert, because I think another very interesting debate that's emerging within uh, Europe now is, you said, how do we react? There are some people, particularly in the European Parliament, who are saying, seize the moment, press ahead with integration, the political project, a European army, whatever. There are others... Uh, particularly, I think, here in the Netherlands and so on, who are saying, no, no, that's exactly the wrong lesson. The British vote was a reaction against too deep integration. How would you strike that balance? I'd say in general that, that we, we sh should not react in the way... A, this crisis is different, and the previous crises uh, were, uh, followed the pattern never waste a crisis and make a further step for integration. I think this is not the time to react in the previous way as we have reacted. I think we have clearly on the table the three major dividing issues. These are the refugees, it's security vis-a-vis -vis Russia, particularly of importance for the Eastern European countries, and it is the economic or employment or youth unemployment austerity questions for the southern countries. I think there are three div Europe dividing issues and we have to resolve them uh, in the way of compromise. And I think this has to be done. There has to be results to be delivered and, and not think about huge new integrational treaty change steps. There is no mood, no appetite for that. Okay. George Soros, could, could I uh, ask you about a theme that came up a couple of times, which is this uh, assumption, probably, uh, well, possibly correct, that the the UK is now going to suffer quite badly economically, and also particularly that the city of London, a lot of it's going to move. What do you think? I, I think that is uh, correct, uh, and uh, that's what I think, and that's what I said. Uh, but I'm, uh, I think that we, uh, uh, the discussion uh, may be going on a uh, unnecessarily negative direction because uh, I don't think we should take the, uh, uh, the Brexit as a fait accompli because uh, uh, the, uh, the outcome was a, negative, was a negative surprise but the response within 48 hours was a positive surprise because not only is there bias, remorse, and general um, uh, 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 regret, but also there is a, a popular movement, a spontaneous involvement in the, in the problem. 
by people who have in the past stayed away from politics, particularly young people, people under 35. Um, and uh, they have these four million signatures. I don't think it's at all... Uh, you t uh, I thought so in the first, but now uh, after we discussed it uh, among ourselves, I don't think it's, it's, it's really utopian to think that you could gather more than 18 million signatures uh, among people who normally are not engaged. Right, right now, there is this tremendous engagement, and I think it's not at all unreasonable to gather more signatures than there were uh, to leave. And that uh, has to be taken seriously by Parliament. And so I, uh, this, uh, the, the, the bottom-up involvement, which has been missing in, in the rest of Europe, has occurred in, 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 in Britain. So, so ironically, the, the pro-European sentiment, which the lack of which Mark was bemoaning, may actually be created by this shock of losing it, the it European Union. It has been. It, uh, not me. I think it's, I would go a little further. Right now, it has been created, and I think it would be very important to uh, 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 make sh sure that... Uh, the momentum is, momentum is not lost. Okay. Um, well, we've got a couple of politicians here who might have an idea as to whether that kind of movement is, if, is likely to be ephemeral or something you can build on. But, I mean, Alex, I was thinking, as Hella was talking about, the need to rethink about... Uh, to, 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 um, if I, I can... I don't want to get too personal, but I remember when we first met, however long ago it was, 10, 12 years ago, you were a very, very convinced European federalist, um, very confident in the future of the project. You then went back into national politics, encountered the backlash, the true Finns, all of that. Have you revised your views in recent years? Do you think you placed, and Europeans in general, placed too much weight on a European identity that was thinner than you thought and that national identities just maybe are just more powerful than the European identity? If you want to get philosophical, <laughs> let's do that. I, I actually think that the basic values for which European integration stands and for the basis of which it was founded, in other words, peace, prosperity, stability and security, they still hold. I still believe that in a supranational world, you need supranational institutions to convey, survey, and create laws, which then in one way or another create a common framework. Now, I want to pose this question. It, it's probably a little bit science fiction at this stage, but I'll, I'll still do it. Um, 2016, we're in the middle of a fourth industrial revolution, which basically means digitalization, 3D printing, robotization, uh, artificial intelligence, and Internet of Things. I pose the question, if we're hollowing out the nation state, which basically we are, politicians don't have power anymore in the way in which we used to. It is completely decentralized. And if there is a populist rejection of supranational institutions, 
such as the European Union? Are we now seeing a revolution from underneath through the means of modern communication which surpasses both the nation-state and uh, the supranational institutions, for instance, uh, the European Union institutions? Are we old-fashioned in trying to create some kind of a European identity? And I look at my children, who are 12 and 14, have dual nationality, British and Finnish, were born in Belgium, now live in Finland. Do they really care about national borders anymore? Do they really care about political decision-making anymore? Or do they live in a world which is completely different? And is this what we are not capable to answer? And this is why I really like what Helle said, because she's on tack. I, I don't think... I, mean, I, I think that Western democracy is in a crisis. There's no question about it. You know, the, the, the movements of Nigel Farage, of Donald Trump, of Marine Le Pen, of Gert Wilders, of the True Finns, uh, they're all of the same sort of framework of mind. You mentioned anti-establishment, uh, anti-globalization, anti-capitalism, anti-whatever. But don't we now need to refocus and realize that, well, if Western democracy is about influence, then that influence has to come through new means, and that is not anymore the nation-state. Or but is it even on, the European Union? The, all those movements you mentioned are all people who believe profoundly that borders matter, that want stronger borders... Uh, exactly, but that's why, again, I'll take the example of the youth in the UK. Yes, it was only 36% of 18 to whatever 29-year-olds had voted, but 75% of them voted in favor. So they believed that this global thing works, and this is what we have to fight against. I mean, if we are in a fight, a completely bipolar fight, on one side you have the people who, yes, believe in, 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 in borders and, and nation-state and the rest of it. On the other hand, you have the globalists. I'll come back to an article which you wrote a few years back. You said that there's no more division between left and right anymore, but there's a division between localist, localists and globalists. And this is the big fight that we're looking at right now. And I wonder whether this was the moment when, yes, the localists won, but will this lead into some kind of a globalist movement? I know this is science fiction, but I just want to throw it out. Okay, hello, comment, and then I'll, I'll get some... It's, it's not science fiction at all, and I think it is, is, everything is true what you're saying, Alex. But we also have to ask ourselves, what do we do in Europe now? What is the answer now? And I see at least three things that should happen. First of all, I agree, we should just take it easy. Why throw insults to, at, the, at the British? I mean, they are I mean, they're just they're complete chaos. Why throw insults? Why not be calm, as has been suggested by Merkel over the weekend? Calm and collected, that should be our answer. That's first thing. The other thing I would suggest is that those reforms that David Cameron managed to negotiate, even though he didn't do it for the common European good, maybe we should look into those reforms. Maybe we should not just leave them now, but say, okay, they're, 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 they're there on the table, let's look into that. That's the uh, second thing. The third thing, I think we should have an aggressive cooperation between the moderates in Europe. This is something that we have experienced for many years, but I see that the divisions are no longer between I'm a social democrat, you're conservative. It's never been a division, or liberal. Yeah, whatever, something, yeah, something like that. <laughs> <laughs> whatever. <laughs> so irrelevant, she can't even remember it. <laughs> 
Yes, I'm sorry. Uh, <laughs> well, anyway, it doesn't matter. I think the most important is that we really spend some time, moderates in Europe, having these realistic conversations. I strongly believe in the moderate movement. I'm a passionate passionate pragmatist and I think passionate pragmatists should come together in the in the future that is part of what we should be doing in the in the very near future but let's not embark into crazy big integrationist projects where we have we, we can look ahead but there's no one behind whatsoever and look, just look at what are the immediate reforms we can do right now to make sure that we solve some of those issues? Because if we ask people of the East, it's security. If it's people of the South, it is jobs and economic growth. And it is people of the North. What they're asking is immigration. That is just the questions. And if we can't look at those three issues and try to solve them, well, then we might as well give up. But of course we can together in the European Union. So... That was the discussion that we had in The Hague. There are links to a number of different commentaries that ECFR has produced on the significance of the Brexit referendum at our website, which is at www.ecfr.eu slash podcasts. We also have a major publication which we've just brought out called The World according to the insurgent parties, which looks at the foreign policy platforms of 47 insurgent parties around the European Union, who are calling for no less than 32 referenda in uh, each in 18 member states. Um, so uh, what you have just heard discussed uh, in the context of Britain might just be the, the beginning of a process which cut, finds its way right across the continent. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please do give us a rating or a review on iTunes, on SoundCloud, on MixCloud. Post about it on your Facebook page. Post about it on the ECFR Facebook page, which is www.facebook/ecfr, or tweet about it. But for now, from Gideon Rachman, Hella Tornig-Schmidt, George Soros, Alexander Stubb. Norbert Rutgen, Gordon Bynai, and myself, Mark Leonard. It's goodbye. The researcher of ECFR's podcast is Ulrike Franke, and our editor is Katarina Botel-Azzinaro. <laughs>